Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey, everyone. As we get deeper into 2022, it is time for all of us to do our part, to save democracy, and to show that America can and will stay on that arc of bending history towards justice. I want you to go to jointheunion.us and sign up to help our grassroots efforts. You can decide how you want to help. You can decide where you want to help. Fill out the survey. Tell us where it is you want to help. We'll put you in touch with the people who can put you to work. Jointheunion.us. Do your part. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by Stephen Smith, the Alfred Cowles Professor of Political Science at Yale University. His research is focused on the history of political philosophy with special attention to the problem of the ancients and moderns, the relation of religion and politics, and theories of representative government. Steve is the author of many books, including Reclaiming Patriotism in an Age of Extremes, which came out last year and is available at your local bookseller. Stephen, welcome to the show. Pleasure to be with you, Reed. So, you know, you and I spoke a few weeks ago about your book, in particular, Reclaiming Patriotism. It came out in January of 2021, but you finished writing it well ahead of what we saw in the November election of 2020 and January 6th. So do you feel like anything you were writing was prescient or were you surprised, I guess, after having spent time researching this book or maybe you're just your experience overall about what you saw in the wake of 2020 or the violence that it devolved into on January 6th? Well, like most Americans, I was shocked by it. I wasn't really prepared for it at all. But you were right. The book was written and conceived long before the events leading up to the election. The book was conceived, I mean, long before the Trump election, before 16. I wasn't writing it back then, but the themes in the book were themes that I had been thinking about. And I would say the germ cell of the book actually went back a very long time, probably to the days, weeks, and months after 9-11. So some of the thinking of the book long predated our current moment, but the uptick in the last two or three years, particularly of sort of an aggressive nationalism, both here and abroad, is the thing that really sort of was the inspiration for me to sort of turn a serious eye to thinking about the problem of patriotism. And so, you know, I think that a lot of times when you spend all day, every day thinking about politics, the idea of patriotism, I think, often gets confused and or conflated with nationalism. Nationalism being usually rooted in ethnicity, a dominant ethnicity in a country. You know, Italy is full of Italians. Germany is full of Germans. France is full of the French. But America is full of Americans, right? It's sort of a different makeup. But in this country, patriotism is for one side, and I'll, I'll call that the Republican side, you know, the license to do anything and say anything because you're defending America. And for the Democratic side of the aisle, patriotism seems to be a word that they're just flat out scared of. Well, I think you've 
describe accurately the situation we find ourselves in, and partly what was the reason why I call the book Reclaiming Patriotism from both sides. Those on the right have not had a problem with patriotism. The question is always, you know, how do they understand it? Those on the left have increasingly run away from patriotism. And one of the arguments of the book is that that is a serious mistake. Democracies, more than probably other kinds of regimes, depend on patriotism. Autocracies and tyrannies don't particularly need it. Everything's governed from the top. It's governed by force. It's governed by edict. Democracies require the consent of their citizens, and consent requires a kind of patriotic attitude towards the country of which you are a citizen. So we can't run away from patriotism. It's a very serious problem. But the other side of that coin is that patriotism, as you pointed out, has been weaponized. It's become a license to extreme behavior, to an attitude of my country right or wrong. It's become a way of dividing not only the world between us and them, but it's become a way of dividing Americans between us and them, who is with us, who is against us, who are the true Americans, who are the enemies of the people. This is the language of nationalism, and it's a disposition quite different from patriotism. Patriotism is a sense of pride in your country. It's a sense of loyalty to a tradition. And at least in America, it has an aspirational quality to it, fundamentally. One of the things that I think makes American patriotism unique is precisely its aspirational quality. It's not just who we are, my country right or wrong, it's what our country might also be. And it has that idealist quality to it that I think the current nationalist disposition ignores. I want to go back to one thing you said about the idea that in a democracy, it, it requires the consent of the governed, which is really rooted in belief, a common belief that this is the way that we should all do it, that this is the system we have chosen. Now, the system was fought for, bled for, chosen by people who died hundreds of years ago, and it has evolved since that time. But patriotism has not really evolved along with it. I mean, just thinking about our current context, Steve, for 50 years in the wake of World War II, patriotism seemed to be a pretty easy thing. There was a global us versus them. We were the good guys. They were the bad guys. If you're American, you're a good guy. If you're a communist, you're a bad guy. You know, that system has broken down. You talk about 9-11, which was 20 years after all that. But now we have a situation where, again, on one side, I'll call it the radical right, because I don't think they're Republicans and I don't think they're conservatives, bathe themselves in the flag and in red, white, and blue and say, it's my flag. Well, there's this sort of negative magnetic pressure on the left that says, I can't even stand with the flag because in my mind, the flag stands for things that are original sin in relation. And if I stand with that flag, then I'm standing with all of the things that have come before. The book begins with an anecdote, which I thought was, for me, very revealing. We were at a friend's 4th of July party. This was now, I don't know, two, three years ago. And the hostess of the party asked people, did they feel patriotic? And I could sense the kind of embarrassed silence that came from eight or nine people. We were all standing there. We were outside. We even read the Declaration of Independence. We were outside. We were celebrating 
America. We were celebrating its founding. Yet when asked if people felt patriotic, they seemed embarrassed by the question. And I thought that was deeply revealing. I mean, granted, I live, like all of us, we all live in bubbles of our own kind, and Yale is its own very liberal kind of bubble. And I'm sure the experience I've described, although not uncommon, would certainly not be true of many, many other people, other Fourth of July parties who would find no difficulty with celebrating the country and cheering its successes and and the like. But my book was written particularly with an eye for those on the liberal side of the meter. They can't afford any longer simply to allow patriotism to become just an artifact of the political right, because it will be misused. It is being misused. And unless you have a kind of decent understanding of what your country is and what it stands for, you are simply going to find yourself, like so many of the guests at that party, perplexed, bewildered, not really clear about what it is their country means to them. That, I think, is a deeply troubling situation. It's interesting you bring up the 4th of July because a few weekends ago, my wife and I went to see Fran Lebowitz, you know, social commentator, as New York as they come, very wry, very smart. And she takes questions from the audience. And I don't even remember what the question was, but somehow in the answer, she said, and George Washington. Now, I know I'm not supposed to like George Washington because he owns slaves. But you know what? I wasn't there when he owned slaves. He shouldn't have owned slaves. But he's the father of our country, and I like him. Now, this was a very blue crowd, Steve, and it sucked the oxygen out of the room because I think that for folks in the audience, they equate someone like Fran Lebowitz as a progressive when, in fact, she's probably an old line liberal. But it was interesting even, you know, as someone who has occupied middle ground to see the, to your point about the discomfort of folks who don't agree or don't know how they're supposed to feel. What you say is true. Projects, for example, like the New York Times 1619 Project, which puts slavery, white supremacy, racism as the essence of the American experience. I mean, if you believe that is what America stands for, then, of course, how is it that you will be able to say anything positive about the country in which we live if you believe that true? In many ways, America has been much more defined not by slavery as its essence or white supremacy as its essence, but the ongoing and continual struggle against this to abolish it. There is a small p progressive narrative in which the American experience has been one of continually trying to live up to the... That's what I meant earlier when I spoke about the aspirational quality of American patriotism to live up to our ideals, to seek to overcome them, to overcome our failings, particularly rooted in issues of race and slavery. And it seems to me to this constant kind of search to demonize even the founders of the country as complicit in slavery, as white supremacists, it denies the moral heroism of the great men and women you know, Frederick Douglass, Lincoln, Rosa Parks, you know, the list is very long, who have constantly been struggling against this problem and to make America live up to its ideals. That, to me, is a kind of patriotism at its best. Right. But the flip side of that now is that the American right now uses something like the 1619 Project to claim 
or reverse racism, right? Which is like, see, they all, and I, when I use they, I put that in air quotes, and this is almost always exclusively aimed at white working class and white suburban voters, which is, look, they are trying to do everything we say they are, right? They are trying to make your kids feel bad about who they are and what they are because the Republican Party is a nearly completely white party at this point. So to your point about even the title of your book, there's this negative polarity that is one side does one thing and the other side does other. It just continues to push everything apart. Exactly. And one of the ironies of the moment is the way that each side in many ways mimics and is a doppelganger for the absurdities and moral idiocies of the other side. So for example, we have endless fun at poking at the absurdities of college students demanding safe spaces and this kind of language that we hear today, trigger warnings and safe spaces. And then the right picks up exactly the same thing. Oh, we're going to ban this book from the school library. Why? Because it might make a student feel uncomfortable. I mean, it sort of takes it to its most insane conclusion. Well, it's ironic too, Steve, that on the Republican side of the aisle, they are far more snowflakey than the left, which is they feign offense and silencing and canceling far faster than, I mean, the left does its fair share, but when, you know, something happens that they think is unfair or whatever, right, they're the first ones to claim that they're the victims, which I always found ironic, given that they're the muscle-bound guys in tight t-shirts with American flags on them, you know, carrying a six-shooter on their hip. Yeah. That is the uh, absurdity of where we are. So you've got the screaming wings, right, that scare the hell out of everybody, either through action, deed, word, whatever it might be. And then you got, you know, the bulk of us who live somewhere in the middle, you know, a lot of voters just trying to get through their days, right? They don't want to hear from you. They don't want to hear from you. They just want somebody to do their damn job and shut up for once. How do those folks sort of navigate these times? Because as much as you want the tidal wave to go by you and ignore you, you know it won't. Right. Most people, I'll call them most normal people for the sake of argument, of course they care about their country, but they have a lot of other things on their minds. Part of the virtue of a democracy is that we don't have to have the state-run radio or television on 24 hours a day. You can tune it out. Well, and as a representative democracy, you hire people to do these things for you. Exactly. But, you know, there are the wings of the country for whom this is their life's blood 24-7. And they're the loudest voices. They're the angriest voices. And they have come to dominate our political party, especially the one on the right, especially the Republican Party. The angriest voices are on the political right. And I've wondered about that a bit. Why is that the case? Because you would think from an electoral point of view, Republicans do quite well, despite that we're told constantly they represent a declining segment of the population and da-da-da. They do very well in elections. Why are they so angry? Well, one obvious answer would be that they find out that anger is a very powerful aphrodisiac for stimulating voters, for getting out the vote, and so on. There's another sense in which there may be a feeling on the right that despite their electoral victories, that somehow they've lost the war. I don't think that's true, but I think there is a feeling that their country has been lost. And whatever the 
current balance of the House or the Senate or even the Supreme Court is, they're fighting a rearguard and sort of losing battle. And this has contributed to a mentality of continual anger and frustration that the country is not what they think it should be, that you don't feel on the Democratic side in the same degree. Democrats bemoan rightly the rightward tilt of the Supreme Court, of the dangers of authoritarian rule of Trump or a future Trump-like figure in the future. There's fear about this, but there's not the same heightened anger about the way the world is. I'll give you an example. I listen to these parents, everything crazy seems to take place either in Texas or Florida, you know, the book bans in Texas. The reaction of book banning just seems one of these pitiful attempts to, again, kind of to stop the clock and reverse the time in which we live. Well, none of this is an accident. Don't underestimate that, like, the book banning thing is not about the books, and it's not about shielding children from this information. It's a culture war. And that's the one thing that is the difference between the Republican Party and the Democratic Party for a long time, but even more so now it's become even more distilled, which is Republicans fight in the culture. They fight culture wars. And what are they saying? And listen, you know, I'm not a Republican anymore, but I'm not a Democrat. So I talk to a lot of my former Republican friends, and this is what they say. I don't like the Republicans. I don't like Trump, but the Democrats scare me. And they go through all of the things that you just talked about because Republicans, because they have no moral core, are willing to say and do anything simply for the purposes of victory politically. I mean, if you think back to the 2020 campaign, the Trump campaign and the Republicans ran the Bernie Sanders playbook on Joe Biden, and it almost worked. He's a socialist. They're communists. I mean, these things are not accidents. So when you see whether or not it's the book banning, if it's the trans stuff, these are not things that with the exception of the people who live those lives, these are not problems writ large. They are specific problems that Republicans use as crowbars into the culture to say, you may not like us, but we represent your values. You don't like them. They don't represent your values. Unfortunately, Democrats, they try and explain the problem. Well, let me tell you about what critical race theory really is. No, critical race theory is Republicans saying the N-word and trying to scare suburban moms in Buckhead outside Atlanta. That's what that is. It's not about whether or not it's ever talked, because it's not. Don't go into the alley of the culture war unless you're prepared to fight it head on, because, as you know, explaining never works. That's the one thing that I think is different about the American right and the American left is that the American right is an ecosystem. It has its culture piece. It has its financiers. It has a very effective and efficient media piece. And then it's got the leaders who go out and extol those positions to their most fervent followers who tend to be primary voters, which means that once they've made their decision in a lot of these districts in some states, you know, that's all she wrote. The way you frame the problem is interesting. The problem with Democrats are always trying to let me explain it to you. There's a reason why the Democratic Party is called the Progressive Party. Progress is connected with science. It's connected with the belief that the world is a rational place that we can master and we can conquer. And therefore, progressive candidates, they have policies. Why did Hillary Clinton lose that election? Whenever she was asked a question, she said, oh, go to my website and you can see my policy on this or that. You know, nobody's going to do that. 
Republicans understand, in a way, the importance of narrative. People are not so much rational animals looking for explanations. We're storytelling creatures. How did we get from there to here? Maybe it's a story of decline and decadence. Why are things so bad now? Or in the Reagan view, you know, the city on the hill, it was very aspirational. But they understand that voters and maybe human beings, we tell stories about ourselves. It's not just enough, give me an explanation. I want to hear a story. It needs to be embedded in a story. And that, to me, is a great advantage that Republican voters or Republican opinion makers have because they understand that in a way that Democrats, I think, don't get it. My book on patriotism is largely an attempt to, in a way, reshift the story, to tell a story about patriotism that is not simply the right-wing narrative of nationalism, but to speak also to your Lincoln project, it is a Lincolnian story. It's a story that invokes Lincoln to talk about equality, to talk about progress, and to talk about the aspirational side of American patriotism. And that's the story I think those on both the center-left and center-right need to recapture from the extremes of their parties. You know, there's been this talk of months and we hear it every day. You know, Democrats have a messaging problem. And this is what I tell people. They don't have a messaging problem. They have a belief problem. Messaging is derived from something you believe in. Think about the last two Democratic presidents, Bill Clinton and Barack Obama. They were both incredible individual storytellers. They both had incredible individual stories to tell. And they were able to take those individual and personal stories and basically build a vessel by which the Americans that supported them put their hopes and dreams and aspirations for the future. But for Democrats, it has taken singular individuals and incredible individual politicians like that to do it. Most folks, to your point, like if I say this, and a lot of it, Steve, is based in fear. If I say I believe this, who will be mad at me? Who will take me to task for it? So in January, President Biden goes to Atlanta and he gives a speech on voting rights. And he says that a lot of the things that are being done in southern states are reminiscent of the days of Bull Connor. He gets back to Washington. And who are the first people to criticize him for invoking Bull Connor, a terrible person during a traumatic time in the South? Democrats. I don't know. Maybe the president went too far with that one. No, he didn't. He didn't go too far. And what you are saying is, when you say the president went too far by invoking Bull Connor, you as a fellow Democrat are probably saying that you don't believe that voting rights is an issue that you should worry about. That's what you're communicating. And that makes it very difficult for your friends and allies to figure out where they're supposed to stand because they don't know what you believe. Maybe they think the things you believe don't line up with their beliefs. And so I think this really gets tangled up in the sort of polling and focus grouping and, you know, what can we say and what can't we say and let's test it to within an inch of its life when ultimately, as you know, politics is an emotional thing. All decisions are emotional and we wrap rationality around it to make sense. Absolutely. And I mean, I think the term that comes to mind as you're describing that is the kind of Clintonian idea of what they used to call triangulation. You know, we have to find the right kind of Venn diagram or whatever it is that maximizes the most opinion here. And in politics, as in academia, you are in many ways judged by the enemies that you make. 
And I always think of a line from FDR. I don't know if he coined it, but it's the one I associate with him. You know, I wear their contempt as a badge of honor. And we need a little more of that. Trump has no problem with that. He thrives on his enemies in many ways. That's central to his DNA, the friend-enemy distinction. So, Stephen, based on the sort of thinking you did on the book, the book came out a year ago. Two things as we wrap up here. One, where have we gone in that year? And then, you know, in a cloudy crystal ball, what does the next year, couple years look like for American patriotism, do you think? I mean, there are a couple of different scenarios. One is that we continue simply on the same path of division and self-destruction that we seem to be on. Another more hopeful one, and this is only kind of partially hopeful, is that we're coming to live in a very dangerous international situation. What the Russians are doing now, they're testing us, and they're testing the Western alliance in ways that it has not been tested in quite a long time. But it may lead to a sense of greater solidarity. The West may pull together in ways that revive a greater sense of common purpose, of political unity, and a greater sense of the free world. You know, let's put these insane culture debates aside for the moment. We have serious issues to attend to and questions of our freedom and maintaining the freedom of the Western world and a democratic way of life. So who knows, even out of something very bad, something good could arrive. So that's another scenario I'm thinking about. Well, that's true. I mean, there's nothing like a crisis often to bring people together. I mean, as a child of the Cold War, I can tell you, if you had told me I'd be in my mid-40s with kids and somehow 40% of the country would think Russia were the good guys, I don't know that I would have believed you when I was sitting there watching Red Dawn as a nine-year-old. But Steve, before we let you go, as I told everybody at the top, they can find your book, Reclaiming Patriotism in an Age of Extremes, at Amazon or wherever fine books are sold. Steve, do you spend any time on social media? I'm on Twitter and LinkedIn. Okay, and what's your Twitter handle? Stephen Smith Yale. And as always, folks, you can find me on Twitter at Reed Galen. Stephen, I want to thank you for joining me today. Everybody, I hope you stay safe, healthy, and happy out there, and we'll see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on the Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. And we'd love you to join us for our newest show, Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Friday at noon Eastern on our YouTube channel. For the Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode.